So I have a question for you. Have any of you ever seen a counterfeit bill? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Uh, I went to high school with a guy who got busted for counterfeiting. I've tried to explain to you that my rural town was not necessarily a terribly nice place all of the time. But yes, a guy I went to high school with shortly after we graduated went to prison for a long period of time because he had a not very good counterfeiting operation. In fact, I met the sheriff's deputy that caught uh, the uh, infraction, shall we say. And he said it was a terrible counterfeit bill. They wrinkled it up to try to make it look like, you know, they just pulled it out of their pocket, but it was easily discernible. But here's something I bet. Very few of you have ever seen a really good counterfeit bill because you didn't know it was counterfeit. You just thought it was a bill and it passed from one person to the next until probably it entered into a banking system or an ATM that had a, a really good computer inside of it and it was able to discern, hey, this isn't real. But most of the time, we can discern easily counterfeit objects, but ones that are done really well, that's a lot harder to discern and to pick out. You know, we live in a world full of counterfeits, some easily recognizable, some not so much. And for many Christians, counterfeit teaching is very difficult to discern and to spot. Teaching that is close to the truth, but just off, which breeds quarreling and babbling and dysfunction inside of the heart of the Christian and inside of the church. For many of us, we have a very difficult time discerning what is true and good and healthy and right biblical teaching and what is counterfeit. In, in an age of content creation, I think this is more important than ever before for the church to learn discernment between healthy teaching and that which is counterfeit. Today, we're going to look at 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19, as we continue in our sermon series through the book of 2 Timothy. And Paul is writing to Timothy, addressing these two counterfeit teachers, um, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are teaching that the resurrection has already happened and it's creating discord and dysfunction within the church. It's creating quarreling. And so what I want to do today is, is use this passage as a way of looking at markers of unhealthy teaching, of counterfeit teaching, and therefore also markers of true and right teaching. Discernment, testing that we can do to authenticate whether a teaching is true or whether it's counterfeit. So first, I want, to look at, I want to look at four things today, and it won't be that long of a sermon, I promise. It's not going to be 25% longer than normal, but four things today, okay? First, does the teacher align with the teachings of the Bible as interpreted by the historic church? We all actually need a long history of interpretation to know right doctrine from wrong doctrine. Second, does the teacher hold office in the church or are they submitted under the officers of the church? What we see are these two men that are operating outside of the authority structures of the church and bringing dysfunction within it. Third, does the teaching itself lead to holiness by the Spirit? Or does it just lead to more quarreling? And fourth, you have to actually look at the character of the teacher. And are they marked by gentleness with a commitment to truth. 
gentleness with a commitment to truth. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19, but we're actually going to cover much more than this. We're going to keep going, I think, down to verse 26, I believe. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, for their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." The first thing we see are these two teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and they're teaching a doctrine that sounds odd, that the resurrection has already happened. You know, we're 2,000 years out from this moment. How could they teach that the resurrection's already happened? Well, think about it for one second, right? If you actually take the whole of Scripture, what we see is there's a great deal of teaching that the resurrection has happened within us right? We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. Right? There is a sense in which we are the resurrected people of God. But it appears that these two men are going a step further. They're going beyond merely saying that we are resurrected, meaning made new in Christ Jesus. They are teaching that the imminent resurrection of Christ, when Christ will return to make all things new and everyone will rise from the grave, that moment has already started. Now, that might sound odd to us, but we actually see this happens more than once in the early church. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul directly addresses that heresy as well. So there was something in the water at the time, which was teaching, we don't exactly know, but it's something along the lines of, we're already resurrected. Christ has already returned. He might just be in the other town next door. You just haven't seen him yet. He hasn't made his way over here, okay? And what we know is this has created a great deal of dysfunction and disorder within the church. In the church of Thessalonica, people were unwilling to work. Why do I need to work? If Jesus is already back, right? The streets are going to be paved with gold. I'm good to go, right? People might might no longer be willing to be be married anymore because, you know, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no, you know, marriage, right? So there's all kinds of downstream dysfunction, and it's what theologians call today an overly realized eschatology. Overly realized eschatology. That means the already, we've been resurrected, and the not yet, we will one day be resurrected eternally, those two get collapsed into each other. So what we have to actually do is look at this text with more empathy than we tend to have. How could anyone be so stupid as to think that? Well, guess what? There's tons of theologies today, and I'm not going to go around naming them all, because this sermon was really hard to just not start naming names, okay? And I'm going to not because of point four of my sermon, Um, gentleness. But we do this all the time, right? We have overly realized eschatologies that look at what will be and collapse that into today, okay? And what it has done in the early church is is it has bred quarreling in God's people. And Paul directly speaks against it. Now, 
how can we as God's people keep our eyes open to see people like Hymenaeus and Philetus who are teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. So let that sink in as well. They believe in the resurrection. They might even believe Jesus is the son of God. They might even believe he's the Lord. So much so they're saying he's already come back, guys. We're already resurrected. These aren't, we don't know exactly, but let's give, let's give it our imagination for a second. These aren't just like pure heretics, right? These are people that are counterfeiting, misunderstanding and manipulating what is true to create a falsity, okay? This happens all the time. So how do we have our eyes open to it? Well, the first thing we see is that Paul has very clearly taught and Christ Jesus has taught that there is, yes, a resurrection that occurs when we are born again in Christ Jesus through the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. And there is an obvious moment in which Christ returns, in which he declares he will make all things new. And this is increasingly clear in the Holy Scriptures, especially in the book of Revelation, especially in 2 Thessalonians, especially in the teachings of Jesus. And now we have the privilege of recognizing that is how the church has understood our great, uh, you know, moment in time where Christ will say, behold, I'm making all things new. We will raise from the grave, right? So we have to do first is ask the question, has the church always interpreted the Holy Scripture to teach this truth? And on the resurrection, the final resurrection, the answer is yes. But today you'll hear these things, especially with the advent of marketing and Christian spirituality coming together. Problematic, by the way. You'll hear things like this. The church has missed this for hundreds of years. Probably shouldn't listen to that person. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. The new perspective on Paul was predicated upon that one statement. We are in a new time with new needs that the historic church didn't have. Don't listen to that person. The church has been in sin and error by missing this forever. Probably not. Okay. Has the church been perfect? No. However, one of the quickest ways to spot a counterfeit teaching that sounds right, but is actually probably just a way of endorsing your cultural and social preferences are people that directly attack the people of God that happen to be dead. So, be wary of putting yourself under teachers that directly contradict the historic and clear biblical teaching on the nature of salvation, on the nature of the church, on the sacraments, on human sexuality, on gender, on church office, on political engagement, on the nature of human existence. Listen to your elders and increasingly be discerning about the voices you are allowing to form you. We live in an age of content creation, which means we live in a time where there have never been more voices saying more foolish things. Be careful with your soul and who you place yourself under. But now I want to go a step further. If Hymenius and Philetus were presbyters 
or that's the same word for elder or the same word for priest or the same word for pastor, if they were holding church office, the teaching office of the church, the presbyterate, right? People that are, have had a bishop lay hands upon them and say, this person right here is supposed to rightly handle the word of God. That person in Ephesus is Timothy, not Hymenaeus and Philetus. And if they were that person, say that they're, you know, have a church plant over here, Paul would just be directly addressing them. So what do we see here? These are two people operating outside of the authority structures of the church. These are independent agents that are teaching some wacky theology outside of any authority structure within the church. Because if there was authority structure, Paul would be directly going to them not telling Timothy to warn his people against them. So what we see is that Timothy is given the task in verse 15 of rightly dividing or handling the word of God. This is an image I love in Calvin's sermon on this. So this is an image of like a dad having a piece of like pie and cutting it up for his kids. A presbyter is responsible for cutting up the word of God so that we can actually understand it. All right, I've told you, my prayer is that the only thing I'm doing in my preaching, I don't expect you to remember most of this, is showing you how to read the Bible so that when you go off and hopefully read the Bible every day on your own, you're like, ah, this is how we pick up this holy book. This is how we have God speak to us. The role of the presbyter is to rightly divide the word of God for the people of God, like a dad cutting up food and, and giving it to his kids, okay? And what we see is Philetus and Hymenaeus are not that. They're operating outside of the bounds of the church. So here's a question I have for you. Does the blogger you really like hold church office or not? Is your favorite Twitter warrior submitted to the authority of the church? The last time I checked, the pundits of Fox News and MSNBC aren't ordained. I don't know. Maybe some of them are. Last time I checked, they weren't. Now, I'm not saying that pastors are the only people that can have opinions, but we only have a limited amount of time. So why wouldn't we submit ourselves and listen to those who have been forged in the fire of pastoral ministry? Th th those that actually walk alongside others in their suffering. Those that are responsible for caring for souls instead of, you know, driving traffic through clicks and likes. Now, here's a qualification. I'm not saying that only pastors can have words of wisdom. That's not true. There are a lot of teachers in this room, parents in this room. We can get wisdom from so many different places. But here's what I want to say. Philetus and Hymenaeus were not under the authority of the church. They were operating against the authority of the church. And so we should be discerning to listen to those who have placed themselves under authority before we place ourselves under their authority. I've talked to so many of my pastor friends. You know what we're the most concerned about right now? Discernment. Right now, like no other time, God's people need discernment because there are so many voices to wade through. The first test of a counterfeit word compared to a true word is does it align with the historic reading of God's word 
And is it submitted to authority? If it's not, be wary. Now let's continue because we can't just stop there. True teaching, godly teaching leads to holiness by the Spirit. Look at verse 20. Now in a great house, it appears that Paul's changing the subject. He's not. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What is the aim of the Christian life? I do believe that we have lost this and it has been a hole in my preaching. What is the aim of the Christian life? Holiness in service to God. Holiness in service to the master of the house. And if the teaching that we are under does not drive us to personal holiness, is it really worth our time? And look at the images that Paul gives. He compares, you know, you know, images for honorable use and dishonorable use and silver and gold. How are silver and gold used or how are they formed, right? You have this hunk that has a form and it is thrust into a fire where it temporarily loses its form and then it is reformed. That is the very image of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, isn't it? That we are thrust into the fire of the Holy Spirit with all of our warts and all this lump of gold or silver. And it feels like a burning hot furnace where the Holy Spirit is forging upon us a form that we might become like Jesus Christ. And then we're pulled out and he shapes us and he fashions us into this vessel for honorable use. And that's never a good feeling process. The last time I experienced, I've never experienced holiness where it felt really good personally. It feels like running. People that like running are weird. I'm sorry. You're weird. I'm built like a runner and I hate running. It's dumb. I always want to yell, what are you running from? Turn and face your problems. Is what I was, right? <laughs> uh, sorry to all the runners in here, but uh, okay. It never feels good. And godly teaching should thrust us into the fire of the Holy Spirit that he might form us. Some of you know, um, my sermons used to be better. They used to be, I had lots of good theological quotes. I was young and had a fully, you know, fi you know, my brain was firing on all cylinders. And I would quote things and I would memorize my sermons and I had great turns of phrases. And they didn't do very many of you very much good. It was like a Time Magazine article in the lobby of a surgery center. And you might've read the article and you said, that's probably good enough for today. But what you really needed to do was to go get in the surgery table and have the Holy Spirit cut you open and do work. And I hope that my preaching ministry has been marked by repentance, turning away from this game that I used to play with you, where I tried to make you feel smart, 
right? This middle-class game of, oh, I know you're all so smart, so I have to say things to make you feel smart so you come back, right? I'm tired of it. You don't need that. It didn't do you any good. What you need, what I need, is for the fire of the Holy Spirit to melt you down and build you back up. And my prayer is that my preaching ministry has been a repentance from an off-counterfeit teaching that made us all feel good but didn't do a lot to a ministry that I hope by the Spirit melts you down and reforms you. Don't put yourself under the teaching of men or women that don't make you look at yourself. Here's what modern teaching does. It is very good at teaching you how others ought to be formed, how others ought to repent, how others are creating disorder in the world. And it won't touch how you are creating disorder in the world. Brothers and sisters, be careful and run to those that actually will make you look at yourself and seek the Holy Spirit to reform you. Now, let's look at the final piece, a gentle heart. Look at verse 22. Just remember, this is, this is Paul talking to Timothy, the teacher of the church in Ephesus. He says this, so flee youthful passions and, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Our church planter, Jesse Blaine, is one of the smartest guys I know. I don't know if you notice, I can't memorize at all, so I'm very bad at languages. I have a, you'll notice I have to look at my book during the Eucharist because I can't memorize. <laughs> it's a whole other thing. Um, uh, but he can, he, he can, know, he knows a kajillion languages. He can memorize anything. He's crazy smart, and he's also very funny. And I learned that early on when he and I were chatting, and we were kind of doing the, you know, the who do you like to read game? And I was talking about the guys I like to read. He's talking about guys he likes to read, right? And we realized, okay, we're both broadly reformed guys. We like Reformation theology, the theology of grace, that God plucked you out of your sin as a pure act of his generosity, not by works, but purely by his benevolent grace for you. And he said something. He said, yeah, I'm reformed, but I'm not mad about it. And I thought, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. Because there's a trope, there's an image, there's an online warrior, there's a freshman in every Christian college who's been formed by the young, restless, and reformed crowd or the reformed dispensationalist crowd. I don't know what that even means, by the way, but that's another thing. And they're just mad. They're so mad, right? And anybody that doesn't like have exactly right doctrine in exactly the right way, they will just bludgeon them with their intellect, right? There's no gentleness. There's no kindness. It's, it's, you know, you're saved by grace and good theology and everybody's a heretic but me. And I was raised by incredibly generous reformed pastors. So I remember things being like, who are these people? I don't understand this. Yeah, but it also sp spoke to my young and angry side. So I like some of it too. But as I've gotten older, I've just had zero patience for it. None, zero. 
Why? Because if that's what grace is, why would anybody want to be a part of it? When we're the ones who are supposed to be teaching, I only have this theology because God showed it to me. I didn't earn this. It's no superior intellect of mine. It's no superior godliness of mine. It is purely God's grace that I cling to what is true and good and beautiful. It's not me. So what do we see? Why am I bringing this up? The character of the teacher should matter. It really should matter. Who we submit to should matter. And we are called to submit to people that have been forged by a gentle spirit, a loving spirit, a patient spirit, and a spirit committed to truth. We often think those can't be the same. And so we are drawn to those that bludgeon people because we think, well, that's what truth has to look like. Because if we are gentle, then the heretics will win. If we're patient, then they're just going to win the debate and ruin the church. But what do we see here? Paul does not think these are either ors, brothers and sisters. He says this, uh, God may, he says this to Timothy, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, right? This is a commitment to truth and patience. And then he says in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. What we so often want from our teachers today are strong men that stand up for the truth. And you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of when Israel asked for Saul. They wanted Saul to go fight their battles. And he presented them himself as this macho man that could go fight battles on their behalf. And then what ended up being the truth about him? He was a coward. And who was called? David. David, whose day-to-day -day life was formed by gently serving sheep, bringing them alongside of him, helping them find water. Sheep you have to be really patient with sheep. You know, I'm a donkey man. Donkeys are smart. They'll survive in the wild. They don't need you. They're loyal to you. They don't need you. Sheep need you. They will not survive in the wild, right? But what was David also willing to do? Fight when it came to it. But he was never the first one to draw his sword. His life was characterized by gently loving sheep. And when the time came, he pulled out his sling. But he only did it when he had to. Brothers and sisters, we should follow those who are formed by pastoral care and love for God's people and a commitment to truth. Be discerning about the character of those you listen to. Hold me to accountability on my character. It matters who we are submitted to because our souls matter. Our souls matter. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that I will continue to serve you in this way. And the minute I don't, you need to remove me from office. But I'm also not convinced that all of you are going to, I'm not going to be your pastor forever, whether at this church or you'll move somewhere. And wherever you go, wherever God finds you, my prayer is that you would be discerning 
about whose leadership and whose teaching you find yourself under. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks to us and forms us and shapes us. Lord, would we be discerning about true words and counterfeit words, about words that bring us to life and words that over time bring us to death. Lord, discernment is so hard. If only we could hear your voice every time. But Lord, would you teach us to tune our ears to you again and again and again, that we might grow into your likeness by your spirit. To the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.